Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is March 4th, 2021. I just want to mark that because historians are going to look back on today and notice that the House of Representatives shut down because of a credible threat of an attack by conspiracy theorists who think that today might be the real inauguration and that uh, President Donald Trump will be coming back to power today. Uh, we're also in the midst of this massive pandemic that has killed more than a half million Americans. And uh, we are, as a country, uh, absorbed in a debate over Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. So here we are, and joined by Philip Rucker of The Washington Post, the author of A Very Stable Genius. Philip, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Now, it's uh, the, the book is now out in paperback. So congratulations on all of that. And you wrote it with your co-author, Carol Lenig, uh, who, again, another reporter for The Washington Post. Um, for people who don't know, uh, Philip Rucker was the White House bureau chief for The Washington Post throughout the Trump administration, now a senior uh, Washington correspondent. You know, I just think about today. It feels like today is one of these hangover days that I think that, that a lot of us thought that by March of 2021, if President uh, Trump was not reelected, we would have moved on. He would be in the rearview mirror. And yet we cannot quit this guy, can we? I mean, today you're looking around and going, this is the Trump that America has left us, that we're having a culture war fight over Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss and the capital of the United States, at least the House of Representatives, is shut down because there are nut jobs out there who think that today is the day of his great return. Yeah, Charlie, how naive we were, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to think that, you know, if Trump would lose the election, he would he would somehow disappear. But, you know, we only had to look at that stage at CPAC uh, last weekend to see how powerful Donald Trump remains with the Republican Party and with millions of his followers, uh, some of whom believe this uh, completely nuts conspiracy that the real inauguration or whatever is March 4th. That's just not true. It's complete bunk. Uh, but it's the state of our politics today where um, people will believe what they want to believe and they'll follow uh, the leaders of their choosing, regardless of whether those leaders are telling them the truth. So I was I was reading the uh, New York Times review of your book, uh, Very Stable Genius. <laughs> they write, it reads like a horror story, an almost comic immorality tale. It's as if the president, as patient zero, had bitten an aid and slowly, bite by bite, an entire nation had lost its wits and its compass. So it is really, it is a comic horror story. And it feels like we're living in the comic horror story where day by day, you can't figure out whether this is hilarious or whether it's really tragic. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. And and it's funny to think about that review because it was written for the hardcover, mm -hmm. which came out in January of 2020. So before the COVID pandemic, and as horrible as the story seemed then, uh, it over the past year, it has become so much worse because real lives are at stake. And, you know, half a million Americans have died uh, over the course of the last year from this pandemic. Our democracy was tested in ways we may not have imagined. Uh, earlier in the Trump presidency. And so, you know, his actions, the president's actions in the year 2020 just exacerbated what to many Americans and, and many officials in the government was indeed uh, a comic horror story. 
You know, as you point out, your, your, your book was published in January of 2020 before the first impeachment trial, before the pandemic. In so many ways, everything that's, that's in this book is in some ways is predictive or you think about what happened over the last year and a half. And in, and in fact, I won't say that there's an inevitability, but you can, you can, you can see the roots of it, the, the, the dysfunction, the grift, the, uh, the propagation of conspiracy theories and, and lies. Here's a little of the question I want to ask you though. Your, the title of the book is a very stable genius. And the subtitle is Donald Trump's testing of America. I thought that was a really interesting subtitle, especially when you think that it was written, you know, back in 2019, 2020. So what did you mean? How was he testing America and what was the result? Well, he was testing America in so many ways, um, as as you've studied these four years, Charlie. He, he was testing our rule of law, our institutions uh, in the government, our sense of justice and fairness. Uh, but he was also testing America's morality, um, our, our values as a nation, our common heart as a people. There were so many different policies and outrages and um, and 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 actions, norms he busted through over the course of his presidency uh, that that tested the country like it had really never been tested by a president before. Certainly, the United States has uh, ha- has weathered you know many crises over the year. First and foremost, the Civil War, but never has there been an elected president so determined uh, to to push those boundaries and and to test. Um, the strength and resiliency of our institutions. And, you know, critics would say he wasn't just testing uh, America, but he was trying to change America and take it over and and make it uh, more of a a totalitarian authoritarian state. Um, He he did not succeed there. The the voters had their say in November of 2020, but uh, it was an incredible testing period for this country and, and for the citizens. So how, how did we pass the test? Because it, it, you know, one of the things he was testing was whether he could get away with everything, whether, in fact, uh, he, he was, in effect, above the law. Right. And one could interpret the results as saying, yeah, um, he succeeded at that. He, he has been so far unscathed. He is, in fact, above the law, twice impeached, twice acquitted. What do you think? How did, how did we do on this test? Well, it, it's mixed. I mean, Trump did escape accountability in, in both of the impeachment trials, but he didn't escape accountability when it came to the judgment of the voters. Um, they denied him a second term and voted him out of office. And, you know, that's political accountability in a sense. And we should keep in mind that there's still um, there, there's still legal accountability underway. The uh, attorney general in New York, prosecutors there are uh, looking into his business and his finances. Uh, prosecutors in Georgia are looking into his efforts to try to uh, change the election outcome in that state. And there are other investigations too. Uh, and, and frankly, there's a very real possibility that there may at some point be a federal investigation into his role uh, inciting the insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th. And so uh, accountability may still be to come, but the, the, the worst accountability of all for this president was, was losing, being branded a loser, being denied uh, his reelection. And he was by the voters. Except he didn't lose, right? At least in his mind, 
he he won. He wow. won. He won bigly. And and the va- <laughs> and the vast majority of Republicans seem to think that in fact he is not a loser. So it, in some ways, Donald Trump did succeed in in sort of bending the reality curve of American politics and rewriting political morality for the country. I'm not trying to be too cynical here, but it is remarkable as you look back on the four years what he managed to do and how the political culture of this country has been changed after just four years of him in office. Yeah, you're exactly right about all of that and and the degree to which he was able to exert power and and co-opt an entire political party. The Republican Party remains to this day completely beholden uh, to Donald Trump, and there's really not much room for, uh, for those who are willing to stand up to him. Uh, just look at what's happened with Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, the number three ranking House Republican after she voted to impeach President Trump uh, over over the Capitol insurrection. She was censured by her own Republican Party back home. Uh, there, there's just not much tolerance uh, in, in today's Republican Party for those who are willing uh, to cross Trump. It, it, it's really become Trump's party and it speaks to to how successful he's been in in co-opting the politics in this country and 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 reshaping uh, politics and his personal image. Okay, this you were this was your life for four years. It was all of our lives. We were, we were focused <laughs> on all of this, and you know, it still you, feels you, like our life. <laughs> well, it, it 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 does, but now you look back on it. I mean, have you you now that you're you you stepped back after four years and you're asking yourself, what the hell just happened to us? You know, there's, there's still so many things that seemed incomprehensible at the time that I will admit to you are, are still incomprehensible, including what you just described, that this man has succeeded in having a hold over the party. You know, Ronald Reagan never had this hold over the party. The George Bush has never had this hold over the party. No Republican has ever had the kind of hold over the party. And yet Donald Trump's presidency was utterly shambolic. So what, did, what is your operative theory of why it succeed as, as, as a presidency, I would argue, it was a failure, but it, seated, it succeeded in, in dominating one of the two major political parties in this country. Yeah. And how did that work? You know, not only was it a, a failure as a presidency, if you just look at the, the facts, right, the, the crises, the, the lack of, of landmark legislation and, and so forth, but it was a failure politically from a macro sense in that, you know, under, under Trump's presidency, Republicans lost the House, they lost the Senate, and they lost, of course, the White House. Um, and yet Trump had this power over the Republican Party simply because uh, such a large percentage of Republican voters uh, followed him, believed in him, uh, in in some cases believed the conspiracies he was peddling or the the alternative kind of fantasy reality he was creating uh, on on the stump. There was this incredible um, charisma and and communicative power that he had. Uh, still has as a politician where he could make his followers believe anything he said. I mean, I, I, I saw it time after time at these Trump rallies where, where you'd interview supporters afterwards and they're real people, they're good people, they're, you know, teachers and nurses and, and accountants and, you know, store clerks. I mean, they're people in our communities and, and yet they believed 
uh, the lies, one after another, all the way up to the lie that that President Trump uh, won the election and it was somehow rigged and stolen from him, which is not true. Uh, so that the intensity of his of his connection with his supporters explains how he was able to take over the Republican Party and have so much power um, as the president, even though uh, he he failed in so many ways from a policy standpoint and from a broader political standpoint. But how did he do that? Because I agree. I mean, obviously, that you can't understand what's happening with the Republican elected officials without understanding the base. This is a base problem. It's a voter problem. How did that work? I'm looking at the various chapters of your book, you know, Unhinged, Shocking the Conscience, Paranoia and Pandemonium, Scarathon. You watched all of this, and I'm sure you went through the same experience everybody else did. Who was saying, well, okay, this is going to be the breaking point. Okay, well, this is going to make a difference. When <laughs> every couple of weeks, there was a every, breaking point. <laughs> exactly. Hey, you'd look and say, okay, this, this is going to make a difference. I mean, you know, if, if somebody would have told you, what if half million people died? you know, from the, 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 the pandemic? What if he tried to do all of these things and yet none of it made a difference? So you've talked to these people. It, it, I, my shock of the last four years was not Donald Trump because I think Donald Trump was pretty much who he was. He told us who he was. Other people told us who he was. Uh, there was really, I mean, it was appalling, but it was not shocking. He was living his life. He was being Donald Trump. The shock was watching people look at it and look at all of this and going, yeah, we're okay with that. Okay, yeah, you lied, and I'm okay with that, or I'm going to believe that lie. Is it, what does it say about our politics or about the media? Is, is, is it the media ecosystem? Is it something else that, that about the political culture that was accepting of, of Trump's behavior? You know, it's such an interesting question and an important one and it's, hard, it's a know, hard question I and know. it's hard to answer there's no easy answer for this um and i agree with you by the way that that the big shock of the last four years was not uh the things that trump did but the fact that that everything he did uh didn't really have a consequence in terms of of depressing his support i mean sure he he ended up losing the election but in, in, in the support he had with his base stayed through everything, through every controversy, through every act of corruption, through every, um, you know, kind of ghastly, amoral statement he would make. I mean, calling women horse face, yeah. uh, all of that. Uh, people stuck with him. And, you know, part of his power, I think, was in his shamelessness. Yeah. Most political figures um, over the years, you know, they they have a degree of, of shame when they do something um that's bad or that that gets mocked or that um, alienates people, they do a course correction. I mean, they they understand uh, where they erred and they they try to do right. You know, other other political candidates who ran against Trump didn't lie as much in part because they thought eventually it would it would come back to hurt them. And, and Jeb Bush would correct his statements <laughs> on the campaign trail when he got some policy minutia wrong because he thought he would end up paying the price uh, if he were not being completely truthful and honest with the American people. And yet Trump never acted that way. He never had shame. And that was so much of his power because he could just get back up the next day and keep fighting and keep punching and, and never and never back down. And there was an appeal in that uh, to his supporters, I believe. And, and frankly, uh, it, it gave people like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy a great deal of pause anytime they consider trying to, to challenge or confront the president. 
this is an important point because I do think that shamelessness is one of his superpowers, and it wasn't that his many that much of his base liked him in spite of that. That really became kind of a feature, and he appears to um, it, it appears to be something that his would be heirs are mimicking. I, I'm you know yeah. you look, I look at the behavior of the Josh Hollies and the Ted Cruz. They've really adopted that part of the Trump persona, haven't they? The complete shamelessness. I'm never going to apologize. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I mean, look at how Holly has handled the aftermath of of his decision in the run up to January 6th not to certify the Electoral College vote. He had his book canceled by his publisher. Uh, he had real outrage from corporate America. He lost donors uh, to his campaign. Uh, he was he was effectively sort of being canceled, <laughs> as they as yeah. they put it in our culture these days. And he was shameless about it. And and he was like, bring it on. And that's the Trump attitude. Uh, same thing with Ted Cruz. When you look at how he handled the the scandal over him uh, taking the vacation to Cancun in the middle of of the really awful um, freeze in Texas, and you know he didn't really apologize. I mean he he said he, he regretted going, but he, he was pretty shameless about it and, and picked up and moved on. And I think we're going to see more and more of that uh, in the months to come as those two men, but also a host of other Republicans jockey for position and, and try to be the one to carry uh, the Trump mantle forward, assuming that is that President Trump doesn't run again for president in 2024, which he has uh, he has teased doing so. Well, what do you think? You're a, a Trump watcher. Do you think that he will run in 2024 or does he just like being being mentioned and, and freezing everybody else? What do you think? Well, certainly he loves being mentioned and, and freezing out the rest of the field. And he's been serious in conversations with his advisors, um, according to my reporting, that he wants to pursue a campaign. Now, whether he actually pulls the trigger and does it is to be determined. I have to tell you, I'd be a little surprised if he did. Mm -hmm. And and for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's hard to run for president. It's grueling. It's exhausting. Um, Trump is not young. Uh, he's already done it. He knows what it would take to do it again. I'm just not sure his heart would be fully in it. And I also don't know that he wants to lose again. And he could lose again. Um, certainly, if he ran again, the, the, the Republican primary would very likely be his, although that's not a sure bet. Um, but there's no indication that that he would prevail in a general election. Uh, you know, it, it was clear throughout these four years, and especially on Election Day in 2020, that the majority of the American people did not approve um, of how he handled his job yeah. as president. So I'm not sure he'd be able to turn that around. I don't know that he wants to be a loser again, but he certainly wants to be not only a part of the conversation, but really the dominant force taking up all the oxygen and, and playing kingmaker and really freezing out his would-be rivals. Yeah, the, the, the fear of losing is obviously a dominating factor. And of course, as, as you point out in the beginning of your book, he really didn't expect to win in, in 2016. That was kind of a fluke. And yeah. that's one of the reasons why the, the administration was so chaotic, because he didn't plan for the transition. So, you know, in 2016, it was kind of a lark. I can do a brand, um, whatever. Uh, 2020, I think he probably did think that he was going to win win again, but the, the prospect of losing a, a, a second time. So you talk about, I want to get to a couple of other things, but I am a little bit fascinated by um, 
your life over the last four years, what it was like. Not that fascinating. (laughs) But what it was like covering this White House, because, you know, one of the things that becomes apparent going back over any of the notes is 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 how in many ways it was so transparent because there were so many knives out. There were so many factions. There were so many people who at least reading between the lines would come to the reporters and sort of, you know, try to bear, you know, confess that, oh my God, you have no idea how bad it is. So, you know, this was a very unusual White House to cover, wasn't it? In terms of the leaking, in terms of the, the the various stories that people were were with. I mean, how did you handle that? Because you had the various factions all trying, you know, to whisper in people's ears, and and yet, yet were there moments when you realize everybody's lying? It's like every, every there's, you know, how do you determine what's really real in this White House? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right about all of that. Um, you know, I I covered the Obama White House as well, and this covering Trump White House was just a completely different experience because of the uh, the degree to which, frankly, infighting and, and personalities within the West Wing became so dominant in dictating policy and dictating uh, the actions the president would take. I mean, there were huge consequences to the chaotic um, backbiting that took place in the West Wing. And But as a reporter, it was interesting. People thought uh looking at it from the outside that you know our phones were ringing all day long (laughs) with with the leakers on the inside sharing things and it didn't quite work that way i mean uh you know we had to we had to work to to build relationships with sources to get people to call us back to tell us what was really going on Uh, but the difference is that that sources in the west wing had motive to uh to share what was happening with reporters and and their motives were uh twofold first of all they they wanted to protect their own reputations and uh and and wage war against their internal rivals uh but secondly you know a lot of them were were shocked and outraged by what the president was doing and they knew that if they could get word out to the public about how um, bad something really was or or about an atrocity that was about to take place, um, there would be a chance of stopping it. And the reason for that was because of, of President Trump's media consumption. He consumed uh, more news coverage than probably any other president. He would watch hour after hour after hour of cable television uh, from the residents and as well as from the little uh, study dining room he had off the Oval Office in the West Wing. He read newspapers. He read the Washington Post every morning, the New York Times every morning, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal. He was obsessed with the way the media covered his White House and his presidency. So aides knew that if they could shape some of those stories by getting details out there or um, or, you know, leaking information about an impending presidential decision that the news media narrative could then uh, become dominant and, and change the way the president was viewing the policy. So it was a way that they could stop bad policies from taking place or, um, or prevent other presidential decisions because Trump would just get a little bit frozen when he saw uh, the media going after something. So he would be influenced by the media coverage, even though he presented this image that he could care less, that it was all fake news, that you were the worst people in the world, et cetera, and that people should ignore it. He has he, been remarkably successful in convincing his base, right, to ignore everything that they read in the media. 
incredibly successful at that, but he didn't, um, he didn't take his own medicine, so to mm. speak. I mean, he, he obsessed over the media. He would, he would convince his base that CNN and MSNBC were fake news and the devil incarnate. And then he would watch it all day <laughs> and he would be fuming to his, to his aides and, and, you know, private confidants about how mad he was at Joe Scarborough or, you know, how mad he, he was at Brian Williams for what he said that night on the 11th hour. I mean, he just, he watched it all and he cared deeply about uh, what those in the media were saying about him. He had a very thin skin and uh, frankly, it's one of the reasons he would publicly attack the press so much because he was thinking about the press all the time. I mean, he, he, he read bylines. He, he really, he really cared. You lived, you lived in his head rent free. The, the other thing that's interesting again, going back and, and reading your account of the early days of this administration um, was what a group of misfit toys he assembled around him. You know, it's a, a, a president is often, presidency is uh, the success or failure is determined by the people that he surrounds himself with. And as, as, as you point out, um, the ineptitude came from the very top. He surrounded yeah. himself with, just talk a little bit about, he, he seemed to have to me a, a weird taste for just some of, 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 the, of the cast-offs of American politics and society, people who would never have been allowed anywhere near any center of power, any place other than the Trump White House. He did. He attracted those types. Um, you know, Michael Flynn's a great example of that, but not just Flynn. It was throughout the government. He attracted people who never would have gotten the jobs they got in any kind of normal administration, people who were um, outcasts and mocked by the establishment and the elites. And one of the reasons Trump liked being with those people is because that's who Trump was. I mean, Trump is someone who never was accepted by the New York uh, business elite. He was he was mocked in Manhattan by you know the the more highbrow uh, gazillionaires and and never really felt part of the club. Um, and so he comes to Washington and he wanted to bring the misfit toys with him. You know, the other thing is he just he had such incredible demands for personal loyalty from those who worked in the government that it was just not an environment where um, a more seasoned uh, person from the, the government bureaucracy could could be willing to work or, or could even survive because um, a lot of people who served in a, a Bush cabinet or an Obama cabinet or a Clinton cabinet would never have uh, agreed to do some of the things that Trump demanded. Um, of, of his appointees. So the, the storyline that we heard for, for some time um, from many of the aides and from other Republicans in Congress is that, look, we need to be in the room because we're preventing really awful things from happening. And if we weren't there, worse people would take our place. So in, 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 in retrospect, um, do you buy that? Um, do, were they, were they the, the barriers against worse stuff or were they deluding themselves? Well, 
<laughs> so I, you know, the truth I think is a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And that view was prevalent, by the way, early in the administration with people like Ranks Priebus and yep. John Kelly and Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson. Uh, those were the people and, I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. And Don McGahn. And I mm-hmm. think by the latter years in the administration, um, when Mark Meadows took over as the chief of staff, for example, uh, they were really much more enablers and, and didn't see themselves as the bulwark. Uh, against bad things from happening the the way the their predecessors in those jobs did. Um, that being said, you know I don't think that the the quote unquote guardrails were all that successful. I mean, certainly they helped delay things from happening. They helped avert some catastrophes, but Trump busted through them and fired a lot of them, or replaced them, or or just wore them out to the point where they would resign, like like. General Mattis. And ultimately, the president got his way. I mean, by the end of the four years, uh, this president was able to do most of what he wanted to do. He pardoned the people he wanted to pardon. Um, he he met with Kim Jong-un, <laughs> the North Korean dictator, uh, because he wanted to have that relationship, irrespective of what his advisors would tell him to do. I mean, he enacted the policies he wanted done. He, um, you know, announced the troop withdrawals that he wanted. He did what he wanted to do at the at the border with uh, separating families and and toughening our restrictions against illegal immigration. And you know, that's his agenda. Um, and he was elected to do it. And you know, the the people who were trying to to shape him and guide him and, and prevent some of those things from happening, uh, they might have bought some time, but they didn't they didn't really change the outcome in the end. So you've covered multiple White Houses and you're watching. We're all watching the, the, the Biden White House. It's obviously incredibly early to do that. But in retrospect, and this is a thought that's sort of bubbling up for me, I'm just want to bounce it off you that. That the Joe, when Joe Biden ran on uh, his his theme of unity and you know suggesting that he was going to be able to work with Republicans in Congress, didn't did he underestimate the degree to which American politics has changed over the last several decades? But in particular, how it was changed by the Trump era. I mean, does Joe Biden understand how the presidency has been changed? in the last four years? That's such a good point. And I, I have to say, I, I'm not sh- I don't think he does. I think he had an expectation that he could, and, and, and look, he realized, Biden understands how much has changed under Trump, for yeah. sure. But I think he assumed that he would be able to lead a restoration and return to normalcy, um, if it were. And and I think he's finding now six weeks into the job, seven weeks into the job, that it's not that easy. And there may never be a full restoration. America may never be able to go back to the America of 2016. Um, certainly our foreign alliances are, are different now. Um, the you know ways our government works are different and the ways it connects with the people is different. But the most important difference I think is that um, there's there's so much misinformation out there yeah. in in the country and and people have so little faith in our institutions and and there's no common set of facts that you know there's nothing biden can do to to wave a wand and, and all of a sudden have every american believing that the sky is blue because you know 
40, 50, 60 million Americans think it's purple. <laughs> and that's because Donald Trump has told them for four years that it's purple. And, and so this is going to be a, a generational, require a generational change in our country. And it's, it's really a societal problem that I don't think any one uh, political leader can fix, certainly not um, Joe Biden, although he he does come in with, you know, years of experience trying to work across the aisle and, and bridge divides with um, with the political parties. But this is so much bigger than that and more profound. Well, I'm sure you reflected on this. And I, I, I thought over the last four years that um, we probably were seeing some of the best journalism that we've seen in my lifetime. Um, and this would include the Watergate era. Um, you know, with the work you were doing at the Washington Post, uh, the, the the folks at uh, at the New York Times, uh, even the Wall Street Journal, the kind of investigative reporting that was going on, the detailed and analytical reporting, and yet you had forty percent of the country that was completely immune to it, completely immune to that information in an alternative reality silo. And so that if you if you lived in one America, you had one set of facts, one set of characters, one set of narratives. If you lived in another uh, part of America, it's completely different, which explains, you know, the Mr. Potato Head, you know, Dr. Seuss, March 4th is the real inauguration day universe. And I, I honestly don't know how you break out of that. I, I mean, I don't know how you change it. And no one politician is going to be able to change it. And my sense is that everything that we've experienced is going to get worse because you have a proliferation of more of these outlets that are like you know com committed to uh, committed to, push to pushing the envelope as much, as much as possible yeah um you hit the nail on the head there <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I i i'm incredibly proud by the way of the the journalism that we did at the washington post and and you know, was so impressed by what my colleagues at the New York Times and the Journal and elsewhere were doing in these four years to really um, expose the truth of what was happening. But it is just dispiriting to see um, how many Americans not only disapprove of uh, journalism, of real news, but uh, don't believe it, uh, just don't have faith and credibility in, uh, in what we're reporting. And that's a challenge for us as an as a company at the Washington Post, but also as an entire industry across the mainstream media. And I think the best way we can address that challenge is to just get it right and to be um, to be transparent with readers about how we're doing our reporting, about where our information is coming from, about what we know, but perhaps more importantly, what we don't know, um, being really forthright and honest with people. Uh, so that they can understand how we're we're drawing the conclusions that we're drawing and understand um, how information is sourced to the best we're able to provide that and and just give people some more confidence in what they're reading that there, there's sort of integrity and credibility behind it and we have to not make mistakes I mean I have to tell you the four I years know. covering Trump it was like being on a tightrope um, and I thought every story I, I fretted getting something wrong. And if I got something wrong, not only would it obviously be bad for me personally, but it would just damage the credibility of, of all of journalism. And so the, the standards were just so high in those Trump years, and we've got to keep them that high. We, we just can't afford, um, afford to make mistakes or to get stories wrong or to be misleading uh, in our coverage. 
you know, I remember writing something in the in the first month of the pres of the Trump presidency, saying that whatever journalists do, don't get it wrong because every error is weaponized in a way that totally. you almost cannot imagine how big it can be, and how successful I think the the media ecos Trump media ecosystem is in exploiting any single error. The other superpower that Donald Trump may may have had, and I put this in quotation marks, is as I think that. He also had a way of making his opponents crazy, um, driving them to to do extreme things that then could easily be caricatured. But I also think that as we're stepping back and we're watching, you know, how did we all fall in love in quotes with with Andrew Cuomo? Um, how, <laughs> how were so many? I mean, because he was the the non-Trump, right? So he was protected under the under the wings of Trump's own corruption and mendacity. So we decided that if he wasn't Trump, we were going to overlook all of his flaws. We were going to embrace uh, Michael Avenatti. We were going to embrace Amorata, you know, uh, Amorosa. We were going to, you know, put. Um, I mean, you can think of all the people that sort of went through. Was it um, who was the guy that wrote the the book that kind of blew up in his face? Um, um, Wolf, I'm just trying to remember what his first name was. It Michael Michael Wolf, which was, I mean, remember every you know that Washington was on fire for this book. That sounds like he pulled out of his rear end in in some ways. Okay, I'm not getting into that, but yeah, I mean, this wow. is part of the problem. <laughs> is 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 that is that um, also I think that there was a lack of introspection on the part of much of the opposition that they were not willing to that they, that they were willing to embrace things. That we're going to blow up in their face. Do you know what I'm talking about here? The, the, the there really was a Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> there there was to some degree, and you know, there was a, a sort of sense of uh, on the left of um, hyperventilating every time there was a, a Trump scandal and and sounding the alarms, and you know, to to voters kind of in the middle or, or out there in the country who you know, sort of supported Trump, but, you know, wanted a reason not to vote for him. I think that was off-putting too. And so I think there was a real, um, an issue with tone uh, in, in the coverage and in the political reaction to the news in these Trump years. Yeah, well, we're obviously going to be living with his legacy for some time. The book is out in paperback now. It is a definitely one of the must-reads from the Trump era, a very stable genius by Philip Rucker and Carol Lennig. Um, it's uh, just an outstanding, detailed, meticulous account of what happened before before we try to engage in historical revisionism or drop these things down the memory hole. Uh, Philip Rucker, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes.